Let's pray. Our Father, we come to your text now, these words about Jesus, and ask that you would change us so that we might believe in him more fully, uh, that we would stop trusting in other things, but rather see a mighty God who was made very low for us. May we worship and honour you today through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in the uh, army, we went through a period of basic training, and they basically conform you into the image of a soldier. We used to joke, it was like prison, but you slowly get your uh, freedoms back. And they literally would control every part of your life. And there was one guy who was uh, another guy in our platoon, and uh, he was a Christian, or he said he was a Christian. So we, you know, when you meet another Christian, you get a little bit excited because there's certain environments where there aren't many Christians, and that was one of them. So I got a little bit excited, there's another Christian. Uh, and during the course of uh, our basic training, which went for about three months, um, everyone got to know one another very, very well. And you got to know the character of a person. And that can be problematic for some. And uh, one of the problems uh, for this guy who said he was a Christian was that he ended up being caught out for lying and it was actually really bad. Got, and so, like, our whole platoon got in trouble and the, and the way they do it in the army is you have sort of group punishment. So if one of you does something wrong, you, you all cop it at the same time. But the biggest problem with uh, the guy who, you know, was supposed to be a Christian is he presented himself as a very moral and upstanding man and yet it turned out that he wasn't. He was caught out lying. And so we used to, there was a running joke uh, that they used to call him a liar, which is not a great, uh, <laughs> great thing to, to be called out uh, about you if you're a person, and especially if you're a Christian, or say you're a Christian. In fact, uh, his behaviour was so bad that it was almost like it was bringing down the name of Jesus, because he would identify himself to be a Christian, it would bring down the name of Jesus. It would almost mock the name of Jesus by his bad behaviour. Now, uh, as we see in our text today, we actually see people mocking Jesus for various different reasons. We see sort of Pilate mocking Jesus through his cowardice, not willing to take up the role that he's been given to take justice into his hands. He washes his hands of justice and says, I will have no part in this. And he mocks God by not taking up the role that he should, which is a role of justice, being a governor. Uh, we see the religious leaders who are supposed to lead God's people in, you know, to follow God, to honour him. They mock the very Son of God, their Messiah. They mock, him, they, they mock him to his face, using his own words against him, trying to condemn Jesus with his own words. We see the Roman soldiers who, again, who are supposed to uphold peace and security in the land. And what are they doing? They are mocking Jesus, spitting on him and beating him, totally indifferent almost to who he is. They have all these different people mocking Jesus for various reasons. And yet, what Jesus is doing is the great antidote to mocking Jesus. Because for a Christian person, this is why I want to go back to the, the example of the guy in the army. There's always a reason why we do things 
for a Christian person. There's always a reason why you, you know, will lie or cheat when you shouldn't. Or there's a reason why, for many of us, why we won't stand up and be known as a Christian amongst other people because we fear something. There's a reason that we fear being mocked. And yet the great antidote to that is in our text today and it's actually what Jesus himself is doing. So as we look at this idea of mocking Jesus, we have three aspects to consider. The first is we'll all have a choice to make about who Jesus is. Will we mock him or will we receive him? So there's a choice to make. Uh, Secondly, we see that there is a burden to bear. There's a burden to bear. Those who follow Jesus will be like him. The whole word Christian actually means little Christ's followers of Jesus. If you will follow Jesus, you will have to be mocked. So there's a burden to bear for anyone who will follow Jesus. And thirdly, there's also a crown to wear. Jesus wore a very interesting crown in the text, as we'll see. But there is a crown to wear, and that is a call to endurance, a call to be God's people who will patiently endure, even in a time, even in a culture, even amongst people who will mock you for being a Christian. So let's begin. A choice to make, number one. Will you mock Jesus or receive him? Now, many people would say, well, I've never mocked Jesus outright. I've never mocked him. I've never you know, done what's done in the text. I've never spat on Jesus. And maybe you haven't. But the issue in the Bible is that you really only have two sides that you're on. You're either on Jesus' side or you're not. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You are either on the side of the mockers or you're on the side of Jesus. There's no other choice given to us. You know, um, they used to do the Pepsi or Coke challenge and you had to to do a blind taste and decide which one you wanted. There's no third option there. It's either Pepsi or Coke, right? And it's the same here. There's no third option. You're either on Jesus' side or you're not. And to be on Jesus' side is to be on the side of the cross. To be on Jesus' side, I mean, and this is the challenge of Christianity, to be on Jesus' side is to be on the side of those who are mocked, to those who do suffer, to those who go on to a cross. That's the side that you're on if you're on Jesus' side. It's a great challenge to a time and culture where we uplift comfort. Most of our technology and medical advancement is designed for more comfort. And yet here we are told to side with the one who gives us less. So there is a choice to make and it is a decisive choice. I want you to notice in the text that Pilate, when he realises that these people are going to, that they will not be appeased unless Jesus is put to death, He washes his hands of his own guilt, or so he thinks. And yet really, his job, Pilate's job, was to make just and right decisions. Can you imagine going to a judge in a court, and you come to them to make a decision, and they go, up to you. That's essentially what's happening here. What choice has Pilate made? He has made a decision 
to pull back and take no responsibility, but actually he himself has sided with the mockers. His cowardice has said he will allow the Son of God to be crucified. Someone once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And so the the Bible doesn't really give us any other option when it comes to Jesus. You're either on his side or you're not. And this is problematic if you're um, sitting on the fence about Jesus. Many of us will go on with our lives and we'll sort of just a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I like some things about Christianity, don't like other things. I you know, can see some plausible reasons why Christianity might be true, but I like doing things my own way. A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Jesus does not give us that choice. In, even indecision puts you on the side of the mockers. So it is a decisive choice. It is also a clear choice. We see this in uh, Matthew 10, 34, sort of getting sharper and using a metaphor here for that. Matthew 10, 34 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus has truly come to divide humanity in half. Jesus has come to divide humanity in half. Those that are on his side, he will bring peace and justice and rule over them in love. And those who choose to be against him will get none of that. They will self-condemn. They will say they will choose by their inaction or their action to be on the side of the mockers. This uh, metaphor of a sword is a slice of decision. You're either on his side or you're not. Now, many people uh, like the idea of Jesus. Jesus is popular amongst non-religious people, interestingly. A lot of people don't like Jesus, but a lot of people sort of you know, think he's okay. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, talked about, uh, there was many people when this book was written, who liked the idea of Jesus as a great moral teacher. Someone who you know, we'd like to learn the moral values from, but that's as far as it goes. You know, he's a great person, but he's not Lord of the universe or of my life. And this is what says, how C.S. Lewis responds to that. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let none of us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And C.S. Lewis found this out for himself. He used to call himself the most reluctant convert in all of England when he became a Christian because he came to this conclusion for himself. There's two sides, universally, Jesus or not. So it is a decisive choice, it is a clear choice, and it certainly is a universal choice. And we get some extremely ironic words in verse 25 of our text today. When Pilate washes his hands of guilt and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. What do the people answer? His blood be on us and our children. Imagine that. Imagine being the children. They're taking the guilt for crucifying the Son of God upon themselves. It is a extremely ironic statement. We'll get to the irony a little bit later. But how might we, like Pilate, try and wash our hands from responsibility for making a decision about God. We might come up with all sorts of excuses. And it might be kind of really simple little things in our life. You know, I, I feel like I can't really go all in with God at the moment because I've got a lot, lot of other things going on. I have other different priorities. But the question comes back to us, whose side will you be on? There's only one question that needs to be answered for you for your entire life. It is, whose side are you on? What choice will you make? Will you try and wash your hands of responsibility when it comes to making this choice or will you stand up and take it? Sometimes we try and wash our hands of responsibility by coming up with other ways that we might make ourselves right with God. I had a friend I went to high school with and he explained it this way. I asked him, so how do you know you're, you're sort of right with God? And he tended to see God as the universe, but that there is a sense of justice in the universe. So we need to make ourselves right in order that when we die, we'd go to the good place, not the bad place. Most people have some sense that that's true. And so his thought was that uh, there's two piles of rocks, white rocks and black rocks. And if on the scale of your life you have more white rocks, which represent good deeds, than black rocks that represent bad deeds, then you'll be okay. You just need to make sure that there's enough weight in the good side so that it covers up the bad side. I think that's a fairly prevailing thought in our culture today. The problem with this, of course, is that what happens to the black rocks? They don't just disappear. A good and right judge, like a pilot should have been, does not stand there and go, oh, just don't worry about it. No. And if you imagine, there's a lot of black rocks that humanity has, piled up, an enormous mountain of black rocks, going right up into the sky, all across the earth for all the bad stuff that humanity has done. What happens to those? A good and just judge must deal with evil. And so you cannot appeal to justice 
that you decide that you've got enough white rocks to outweigh the black rocks. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. The only way, oddly, and this is the ironic part, the only way to be cleansed is by the very blood that condemned the people who said his blood be on us and our children. That is what the Bible tells us. Jesus is willing to pay for the pile of bad deeds of the world in thought, word and action. God is perfect in justice. That is, his accounting records are exact. He knows everything that everyone has done against him and against each other. And yet Jesus is willing to take that all on himself. That's the whole point of the cross. And so that if, you're, that if his blood is truly on you, for cleansing, then all your debt is paid. All the black rocks are taken away. And he doesn't regard our white rocks nearly as much as we think he should. So it is definitely a choice to make, firstly, whether we are on Jesus' side or not, whether we mock him and stand on the side of the mockers or whether we are on Jesus' side. But it is also a burden to bear. The question that comes to each of us is the challenge of Christianity. Will I bear the burden of being mocked with Jesus or not? There's this interesting thing going on in the text. There's a real inverted glory of Jesus happening here. So on the one hand, we get you know, Jesus being as low as you can possibly get. You know, he's beaten. He's bloody. He's humiliated. And yet in his utter humility we see his goodness and his glory. Let me explain about Jesus' inverted glory. On the one hand, we see this scarlet robe that Jesus is clothed in. So when he comes to the soldiers, they strip him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, ordinarily, uh, a royal figure would wear a purple robe. And actually, in the other Gospels, it's identified as purple, but... Uh, we see Matthew, and Matthew's a tax collector, so he's very exacting. Uh, we see that it was actually a scarlet, a red robe. It was the closest thing they had to a purple robe, but it was red. It was the cloak of a Roman soldier. I don't know if you've ever seen in the movies that Roman soldiers will wear a red cape. That's what they wrapped Jesus in, in a crimson red, a scarlet red cape. Now, the interesting thing about this is that, uh, and, and it is quite ironic as well, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Jesus is clothing himself in the symbol of sin. He's saying he will take it on, and it's given to him by a Roman soldier. He's clothed in not the cloak of royalty, but the cloak of someone who inflicts death and punishment. He's saying, I will take that on myself. They do it to mock him, but Jesus does it to save them. We see the second thing they put on Jesus is a crown of thorns. Now again, there's an inverted glory here, because the Caesar, that is the emperor of Rome, would wear a wreath on his head of olive branches. 
And the olive branch is the symbol of peace. That is, the Roman emperor is to bring peace. He did it through conquering, of course. But what does Jesus get? He gets twisted thorns made into a crown and put his head in. That when they dig in, blood runs down his head. Again, this reminds us from Genesis that Jesus is taking the power of the curse. Genesis 3.18, the thorns and the thistles that come upon this world. You know, the, the way that things don't work out as they ought to in this world, Jesus is taking the curse for sin upon himself, symbolized by this crown of thorns. Thirdly, they give Jesus a reed in his hands, not the golden scepter studded with jewels you might expect from a king, but no, a reed, and they take it from him and they beat him with it. And yet it reminds us that though Jesus ought to have the symbol of power and authority in his hands, he laid it down. Philippians puts it this way. Speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Fourthly, we get a cross. As Jesus is humiliated by the Roman soldiers, they then crucify him. It's put very simply in the text. It's not explained for us what exactly happens. But it is the cruelest form of punishment for death that they could come up with in the first century. Ordinarily today, when it comes to executions, we try and do it as humanely, it's an ironic word as well, humanely as possible, quick, clean, done. The Roman soldiers wanted a long, slow, public, humiliating death, which there was no escape from. And so Jesus was placed upon a cross. In the Old Testament, uh, it said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is, those who are put up to, uh, on, a, on a tree, those who are hung on a tree, they were bearing the curse of God. And yet, Jesus, when he went up on the cross, the Bible tells us, is taking the curse for us. He's saying, I will bear the wrath of God myself, not you. So when we look at the burden that we must bear, we must look at how low Jesus was willing to go for us. What does this mean for us? This means that Jesus went lower than you could possibly ever go. This means that there's no depth too far that Jesus can't redeem you out of it in this life. Whatever failures that you have made... Whatever ways that you have mocked God, Jesus was mocked to a greater level. Because he went from the highest position where all of these articles, you know, the, the cloak, the crown, 
the scepter. All of these articles were to represent his royal majesty and should and do. And yet he laid them aside as they were twisted, they were inverted. And yet we see a wonderful God who is willing to lay them down for us. And so that tells us the evidence is here that he loves us that much. He was willing to go that far for us. This is a great remedy for our fear of being mocked by people for being a Christian. One of the greatest things, I think, that uh, comes on Christian people is they fear what others will say if I stand out from the crowd or what others might do to me, how they might treat me. You know, in various places, you're, you, know, you might face severe consequences for that. I face this fear myself. Uh, when I was, my last, about three years of high school, 10, 11, 12, I was consumed by this fear. This fear that if other people found out that I was a Christian, you know, my everything I was living for would fall apart. You know, I, I really cared about what other people thought of me, as many of us do. But if others in, in my social groups, and you particularly find the pressure points are at school, university, work and family. When you're in one of those situations and people find out you're a Christian, you don't want them to, you can get really fearful. And so you hold yourself back. And so I did. I was holding myself back when I was at school. I wasn't telling people that I was a Christian. In fact, I thought that they wouldn't find out that I was a Christian. And this went on for years. And I I remember distinctly, it was um, first term holidays, year 12, and I went on a Christian camp Went on a Christian camp and none of my school friends knew about this Christian camp. And this was back in the days when you had to call the home phone to get a hold of someone. And so my school friends called the home phone and they're like, oh, is Lawson there? And they're like, no, he's at a Christian camp. And they're like, Christian camp? And they all laughed, as you can imagine. And I got home and my parents said, yeah, your friend's called. And I was like, oh. Uh oh. <laughs> the secret's out. The, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, a week later, a, a friend of mine, a Christian guy in our youth group, so I used to go to a youth group secretly. I used to go to a Christian youth group secretly while I would um, still go to school and pretend I wasn't a Christian. And a, friend, a Christian friend at this youth group died in a car accident. And it like just ripped out uh, our sort of foundation for many of us about what we were living for because many people in this youth group were just like me, were living kind of two lives, living a life where we would, you know, totally fearful of being mocked for being a Christian and so we would either not stand out from the crowd or not tell anyone we were a Christian or not... share about the hope that we have in Jesus or totally avoid it as I was doing. Many people were like that and yet that was shattered and broken because we realised that life has death. We realised that this world is not just the here and now, there's more to it. There's bigger things at stake here. And I distinctly remember 
after, um, after this friend died, going back to school, having asked God forgiveness for my sin of fear, and beginning to tell people that I was a Christian. And some of them had found out through that phone call. But I didn't care anymore. Why didn't I care? What had gotten into my heart that changed it? And was the fact that I realised that this Jesus, this Jesus who we see in our text, who is willing to go so low for me, that he had given himself totally over for my sake. And I was shocked into it through the death of a friend, but I realised that if Jesus was willing to do that for me, well, I can be totally open about him. Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, 24. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We have to be willing to be mocked for Jesus. But the only way that you will overcome that fear is if you see how low and how far he was willing to be mocked for you. Interestingly, uh, there's a guy called Simon of a place, from a place called Cyrene. And Simon was actually um, you know, grabbed and said, you must carry Jesus' cross for him. And the reason why Simon had to carry it is because Jesus was so bloody bruised and beaten that he couldn't lift it himself. But this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen, didn't he? But I want you to notice something that's different going on, the difference between Simon and Jesus. Right? Jesus had been physically beaten, scourged, which is a terrible practice. I won't go into detail, but it's been whipped with uh, these like tails on this uh, whip that have bits of bone and bits of steel in them that claw at your flesh. And they rip the flesh off your body as, they, as this thing whips you. So he was scourged. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns on his head. And, and the other gospels say that he was like punched. So physically, and a lot of people died even before going to the crucifix, by the way, just in, in the lead-up process. So Jesus was physically weakened. He was emotionally weakened. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having all of your disciples leave you? Your closest followers abandon you? One of them betray you? The chief priests who were supposed to be organizing worship of you? Calling for you to be crucified? The crowds whom you loved and served your whole life? A calling, crucify him, crucify him. Emotionally, Jesus had been absolutely humiliated, betrayed and abandoned. And spiritually, he was on the road to being abandoned by God for our sake. So physically, emotionally, spiritually, Jesus was taking it all. And this is the great symbol we have here because Jesus only calls us to carry a cross because he was nailed to a cross. Jesus only calls us to be willing to be mocked for him because he took on the absolute uttermost, the worst of humanity onto himself. I mean, all the physical and emotional things pale in comparison to the spiritual weight of sin that Jesus would wear on himself, being forsaken by the, far, by the Father, going into hell himself. 
And so the antidote to our fear of being mocked is Jesus going to the cross, being nailed to it. That is why this picture of Simon of Cyrene carrying this cross is so powerful. And many people think, actually, that it's uh, Simon's children were converted and uh, written about in the later, uh, later books of the New Testament, which is an incredible story. Okay, we have seen that there's a choice to make, there's a burden to bear, and finally, there is a crown to wear. I want you to notice one last thing in the text is that people called for Jesus to come down from the cross. You see it in verse 40. As they say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They say it again in verse 42. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. You can almost hear the temptation of Satan through the words of the mockers. Come down from the cross. It's not worth it. Pull out. It's the last minute. You can get out if you still want to. You can call on the angel armies if you still want to. I wonder what was going through Jesus' head at that moment. What do you think was going through Jesus' head when he is in the worst position he's ever been in? In his life, he's really close to death. There's a book written by um, a physician about uh, like what actually happened to Jesus. I had to stop reading it. What actually happens during crucifixion? It was that graphic. Your body actually starts to die. And so, as Jesus is hearing people saying, "Come down from the cross," almost the very words of Satan through the mouths of people, come down from the cross. What kept him there? What was it? I think there's two things. One was his promise. His promise in the Garden of Gethsemane, we covered this a few weeks back. He said, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. He said, Father, I will do what you want. I will take the consequence for sin on myself. So Jesus made a promise and he's sticking to it. He began to see the weight of what he was about to do in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, I will do it. And Jesus always keeps his promises. Don't forget that. The fact that Jesus didn't come down from the cross tells us he always keeps his promises. Second reason is love. Because Jesus knew he couldn't get you if he didn't stay there. If Jesus didn't pay for our sins, we'd be stuck in them. And so if you want to know, and if you want to overcome fear, if you want to live wholeheartedly as a Christian, if you want to come to faith in God, you've got to know these things. that He's someone who keeps his word and he did not come down from that cross. Because he'd made a promise. And he always keeps his promises. And he did that because he knew that he would have to go through the cross to death in order to get us to himself. Let us finish there. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you've promised us the crown of life 
though you took a crown of thorns for us. May we take on this truth today. May we be willing to be mocked for your sake because you went so much lower than us. May we be filled with love and to treasure you because you are a good and worthy king. We praise you and we bless you, our Lord and our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.